You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lee Child is the author of Killing Floor, One Shot, The Affair, and 14 other novels featuring Jack Reacher. His new novel is A Wanted Man. Thank you for joining me, Lee. My pleasure. Lee, your very first book, Killing Floor, established the voice of Jack Reacher in the first person. Second time around, you went to the third person. That must have been a big decision for you. It was, and it was based on really one, one or two main factors. The first being that I felt that an author can be as stereotyped as an actor or anything else, that I felt that if you were to do two books um, fundamentally the same, then your whole career had to be down that track. Uh, they wouldn't, uh, readers wouldn't like it if you, if you changed later. But I thought that, suppose you changed between book one and book two. So the idea was that book one and book two would be a kind of left field, right field type of situation where then I felt afterward I would have the whole of that middle ground to explore as and when I wanted to. So the first book is small town, limited cast of characters, first person narrative. The second book is multi-strand, third person narrative, uh, much higher concept with the FBI, the White House, all that kind of thing. So I felt that I'd established two poles there and then for the subsequent books I was free to roam in between them. There was also a kind of slight uh, shell shock of, from, the, from the first person narrative because first person narrative is a bit of a high wire that you're going you're gonna to be worried about falling off that it's very egocentric, it's very I, I, I and after a while that becomes intimidating to do so I, I thought it, not exactly did I lose confidence but it was a question of it's, it is, it's pretty difficult to sustain that kind of uh, credibility in first person. I felt it was easier, in a sense, to describe a character in the third person. He did this, he did that, he was this, he was that, is a lot easier than I am this, I am that. You know, too, it also gives, gives you a lot more freedom in terms of, of plotting and the way you structure the, the tension in your books. That's correct, and that is, for a thriller or a suspense book, that, that is fairly fundamental, that very, very often you want to have, um, you know, the good guys are doing this, the bad guys are doing that, and they're on parallel tracks, but not quite parallel because they're actually converging, and there's the implied promise that sooner or later these two tracks are going to collide. And that is automatically suspenseful. And, of course, the fact that the reader can know things that the narrator um, doesn't know, that the main character doesn't know. You know, if Reacher is walking down a street and the reader knows for sure that there's a man with a gun around the next corner, then that's not possible in first person. That's only possible in third person. And it does, of course, automatically create great suspense. As a writer, I'm wondering, when you were crafting this first book, how much time did you spend just honing down to come to that prose style that goes through all the books? Um, it was pretty much there from the start. It was uh, I paused at the beginning thinking, how am I going to do this? And I, I made a conscious decision to go for a distinctive voice, that kind of uh, rough, tough, slightly inarticulate 
man's voice that would involve uh, sentence fragments and repetitions and choppy style simply because I wanted it to be an accurate reflection of the character and I also wanted it to be somehow distinctive that, that they would autom- readers generally would automatically associate that voice with Reacher and with me so it was there was a you know a day or two pause at the beginning before I, I thought okay this is what I'm going to do this is how I'm going to do it and then I just launched into it and the voice was there and um, interesting over the next 16 books after that has that voice changed and I think it has a little bit it's become slightly more lyrical slightly more uh, um, slightly slightly more relaxed I think than the, the frenetic staccato style of the early books when you start writing a Jack Reacher book you have no idea where you're going you, you, you and I have talked a little bit about this I'd like you to talk about keeping this character consistent between books do you have a bible these are his characteristics or or is it pretty much jack reacher bible lives in lee child yeah the i don't have a notes i don't have a you know sort of binder full of stuff about uh facts or backstory about reacher Uh, uh, because in a sense uh, i think an author doesn't need one because what you've got to understand is that to an author these characters, I mean, supremely your main character is is a real person in a sense. And you know him as well as you know your brother. Uh, now, you know, you don't have a cheat sheet about your brother. You don't have uh, a list of what he likes and what he doesn't like and where he went to school. You know that. And that's how it is with the main character. You just know it. Um, so, yeah, to me, he's... He's as real as a, a family member, and therefore I, I remember in the same way that I remember, you know, where my little brother went to school, where, what kind of clothes my elder brother wears. You just know that stuff. Now, uh, you say Jack Reacher has no backstory, but he does have a bit of a backstory in that we know a little bit about his childhood, and you've just uh, given us a, an ebook that's a uh, novella length like that talks about Jack's childhood and I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, taking yourself outside of the novel stream, outside of the hardback publication stream to create uh, the Jack Reacher uh, one-offs. Yeah, those were um, initially electronic versions only. It was a sort of toe in the water. It was a bit of an experiment. You know, what is the digital market? Um, How is it going to react? What are we going to do with it? All of those things are unknown and I think that if if any writer or any publisher feels right now in 2012 heading into 2013 we, that we understand the digital market, I think they're fooling themselves. We don't. And so those short stories were a toe in the water. What happens if you do a short story, digital only? What are the possibilities? How will it be received? It was, a, it was an experiment. And I took the chance, therefore, to branch out a little bit because you're right Reacher is essentially lives in the present he, he's a man with no past no future so of course he has to have a past and so, but I've doled it out relatively sparingly through the series but when those short stories came along the first one is called Second Son and Reacher's 13 years old in, the, in that uh, story and I just thought it would be interesting for me interesting for the reader to, to go back and explore some of the formative influences one of the things that uh, it seems clear is that, for me at least, the attraction of Reacher is his deductive mindset and the fact that 
we have this guy who has looks kind of like the Hulk slightly before transformation but has a mind like Sherlock Holmes and being in that mind is what's so pleasurable for us as readers and I'd like you to talk a little bit about this kind of interesting cross between the hard-boiled prose the hard-boiled settings and low-key aspects of Reacher's you know and his physical sheer physicalness and uh, mating that with the the very the mental gymnastics of Sherlock Holmes yeah the first thing you you notice about Reacher is his physicality. He's a huge guy, rough, tough, violent, uh, not, not easily intimidated, not easily beaten in a fight, a, a physical specimen, uh, supreme. But I also wanted to, to bring in the, uh, the cerebral characteristics. The books are su- surprisingly cerebral. I mean, Killing Floor, which you mentioned, is a book that, uh, you know, has has blood and guts throughout you know horrific deaths and fighting and all that kind of stuff but the main clue in killing floor the thing that unravels the mystery eventually is the position of an apostrophe is it a singular possessive or a plural possessive now that is something that i wanted to do because i think that's characteristic i mean if you're big and strong that doesn't mean you're dumb you don't have to be dumb um, suppose you're both. Suppose you are a smart guy, capable of uh, intricate deduction, even though you are uh, physically a giant. And so I wanted both aspects there. I think, and it's, certainly that's proved very popular throughout the series that Reacher is a thinking man and that his, his mental processes, his deductions, his intuitions, his non relevant mental characteristics, his uh, enthusiasms, his eccentricities, all of that stuff is um, equally as appealing as his physical exploits. So it was something that I wanted to explore and wanted to um, map out really because it's quite typical I think of, of military people. If you if you reach uh, you know, Richard was a major, if you if you become a if you're a commissioned officer in the US military, you're you're a smart person. And I, I thought let's show that. You know, one of the things you do very well in all your books is deal with the different subcultures of and within law enforcement, the military, the FBI, the CIA, and that all these three come to play um, in A Wanted Man. And I'd like you to talk about creating those cultures and creating the characters who reflect those cultures and then bringing those characters into conflict or into the same uh, plot. I think that's something that readers can easily relate to, actually, because we all work, or we all have worked in various corporate situations where we have departments, we have small groups, we have bosses, we have hierarchies, we have rivalries between this department and that department, we have larger rivalries between our corporation and the competitor corporation. I think whoever you are as a reader, you you know the bones of that situation. You know what it's like to have a boss and have a rival and have bureaucracy and have nonsense and all that kind of thing. And therefore, to be honest, I think the FBI, CIA and so on, even though they have a very important and very specialized job, fundamentally they're no different than any other person's job. They have the same makeup, the same kind of uh, frustrations and so on. So I think all of us can participate in that. Um, we can demystify it a little bit that, uh, you know, the FBI is not all that different from your own job. And therefore, we c- that gets us into the story. You know, uh, as I read your books, it strikes me they're almost like plays. They're, even when you have a big 
book. Like A Wanted Man is a pretty big book. It has a covers a lot of range. But there's the feel of a stage play, and I'm wondering if you've ever thought about writing a, a Reacher stage play. I, I haven't actually, but it's interesting to say that because you know my earliest roots were in the theater and then television, and I think to some extent, yeah, the books are influenced by those long years in as much as generally speaking the casts are relatively small and um, you know there aren't very many mass scenes there aren't scenes inside a sort of full stadium or something like that and that I think subconsciously dates back to the television days where if you bring in an extra character then that is a hassle and it's an expense uh, you know you've got you got to have makeup wardrobe you've got to have insurance you've got to pay them you've got to have catering all that kind of stuff and certainly to fill a stadium for instance full of extras is a nightmare for uh, for movies or television and therefore I think subconsciously I am still in that mode that sort of stage play or uh, TV movie mode of keeping a limited cast if at all possible which is of course ludicrous because it costs you nothing to fill a stadium in a book it's like half a cent's worth of ink but something in my mind is prevents me from doing it uh, I think that's one of the, the pleasures of your books and it goes with your prose when you write these does the prose come out that way perfect for the first time because it's like a Reading these books is kind of like sitting in a, a super fine, super stripped down piece of furniture. You have sanded and buffed this thing within an inch of its life. Yeah, and I never revise. I never go back. I never, uh, I, I never polish in that sense. It pours off the tip of your pen or well, the, 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 the uh, keys of your word processor? Well, when you said tip of the pen, that's a really interesting avenue that you're raising because I uh, there was something that I was kind of half aware of that and then I read an essay by uh, the Italian writer philosopher Umberto Eco who his his theory is that that when we stopped teaching fine handwriting in the schools we damaged our literary possibilities because he felt that when you're taught fine handwriting you will cast the whole sentence in your head before you put it on paper just something to do with the, with the process and uh, I think that's probably true and what I do it, uh, the first book was written on paper the second and subsequent were written on computers uh, but I do cast the whole sentence the sentence is clear and finished in my head before I put it down and therefore it is it's as good as I can get it and I move on to the next sentence I never go back and revisit it so to an extent yeah the the polishing happens during the act of creation and um, you know it's not I'm not one of these writers that that throws down the first draft in a hurry and then figures well I'll fix it later uh, to me there is only one draft the first draft and that's the book is done um, I read I you know a wanted man I probably I, I know that I changed uh, one sentence towards the end of the book simply because when I, I read through it, I, I, I couldn't quite see what I'd been getting at, so I changed it. But that literally out of 112,000 words, I think I only changed three or four of them. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, one of the things I, I like about mysteries and, and the mystery genre is that mysteries will introduce us to a character and we'll see a primary problem there's clearly something awry here but also always usually there's a secondary problem and what's really fun about the mystery genre is waiting to figure out waiting to see when you see 
what appears to be two completely unrelated things draw together. You as a writer are setting these up. Talk about bringing them together or not. Well, again, that's interesting in as much as one of the very frequent questions we get is, um, you know, where do you get the idea for this book? And that kind of misses the point in as much as a, a good book has to have more than one idea. In the same way that um, atoms will combine to form a molecule, you've got to have more than one idea. You've got to have several ideas that will combine to f form the story. And the choice of those ideas is important, obviously, because if you, you know, the wrong atoms will produce an unstable molecule or possibly a malevolent molecule. So you've got, they've got to be the right ideas combined right, but you need three, four, five of them uh, that will combine in a way that that is ultimately satisfying. And what I do is I just somehow instinctively will follow all these different threads. But of course the magic for, for a mystery writer is that if, let's say you've got five threads on the go and two of them are really not going to fit into the conclusion, you can just leave them where they are and they become automatically red herrings. Uh, they were the ideas that didn't go anywhere. The other three combined to produce the denouement. So, in a sense, it's just, if it's intrinsically interesting at the time, follow that idea, see where it goes. If it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it was fun while it lasted. I like the idea of, of uh, ideas and plot threads that become red herrings. That's a really interesting uh, yeah, observation. The, yeah, you know, it's the ultimate economy, really, that if, if, if it ideas A, C, and D uh, lead somewhere and ideas B and, and F don't, that's fine. B and F stand alone as, as the red herrings that have confused people. You know, uh, one of the things that's interesting with your book is that uh, you have give us lots of uh, information Usually, Jack has all these facts in his head, and, um, and there's a great little word game that he plays in, in this book that I think everybody in the universe who reads this book is going <laughs> to spring on the people who haven't. So I'd like you to talk about finding those, coming those. Do you do you have like a, a chest of drawers full of things that you want to that you are going to put in books? Kind of, it, you know, it's a, a completely overflowing chest of drawers bursting at the seams and it's called my head. Uh, you know, that's where all this stuff is. And I am inherently fascinated by facts, information, uh, the way that, that important deductions can be made from trivial information. You know, an unwanted man, very early on, one of, the, one of the slips that one of the bad guys makes is he says, there are a million and a half people living where he lives. Now, Reacher automatically understands that that limits the number of possible cities because, um, you know, the number of cities in America with a million and a half people is actually pretty limited. There's really only Philadelphia that matches that specification. Uh, other large cities are either much larger or much smaller. Or did he mean a metro area, in which case Philadelphia becomes too large and uh, other things slide up the scale to to fit the bill, and so Reach is gnawing away at that all the time. A million and a half people, where can that be? And he, he's inherently interested in that. He knows the population of uh, different cities in different areas. Chicago, three million, eight million in the metro area, and so on. He knows these things. He knows the zip codes. He knows he's, a, he's an information sponge in the same way that I am. And therefore, the smallest thing can lead to a significant conclusion for him. And. I that's one of the, the pleasures of these books is the way you use 
uh, Reacher's deductive process to drive the plot because at the the beginning of A Wanted Man, that's that's what really just kicks us forward. He and I think that's an interesting way to to play with the plot to have a character's perceptions of the world drive what happens. That's that's hard to pull. Yeah, and it it drives the reader reaction because there's. Uh, fairly near the beginning of A Wanted Man, there's a moment that I, that I certainly hope uh, is a surprise to the reader where we're going along and it's, fa- fairly, uh, it's fairly tense, it's, it's the middle of the night, they're in a speeding car, there, there are some fairly strange people. Uh, and then all of a sudden Reach is thinking to him, himself and thinking, well, those three lies give it all away. And the reader, I hope, thinks, what three lies? Because the reader hasn't noticed because they've been... They, they haven't been obvious to the reader, whereas they are obvious to Reacher. And then Reacher explains them to himself, and it becomes perfectly obvious that he's spotted things that the reader hasn't spotted. And that is a kind of, it is an impetus to the plot in the sense that it implies more of the same. The reader thinks, wow, I'm gonna stick with this guy because he really notices stuff. And uh, I think that's one of the appeals of, the, of, of that type of plot, yeah, that it, it it forges ahead simply because the reader wants to hang with this guy to find out more interesting things. As these uh, books have gone forward, I, I'd like you to just talk about um, keeping the variety the way you do because what's interesting is that we have 17 books with the same character who hasn't changed a lot and what happens in each book is is different and really entertaining but there's a certain uh, formula there it doesn't feel like a formula and i the uh, your ability to do that is somewhat jack reacher like in and of itself it's a kind of double optical illusion and as much as reacher doesn't change at all and therefore uh in one sense the he's a, he's an unchanging rock and the story is swirling around him but that's an illusion in as much as Reacher is not static like a rock. It's actually Reacher that's moving. Uh, he's moving around like a pinball into all various different situations. And he arrives in a situation, realizes that it's not right, and puts it right. But of course, had he not arrived in it, that situation would have just continued undisturbed. And presumably the implication is that if he is... Uh, you know, in this book, A Wanted Man, he's taking care of a problem that is basically about Nebraska and Iowa and so on. Um, he's taking care of that problem, but presumably there are hundreds of other problems elsewhere in the U.S. that are completely undisturbed. So he's the one that's actually moving, even though it feels like he's this, the still point in the story. That's really interesting. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, he is all over the map, literally. He's all over the map, and that is, you know, that's where the flexibility of the series comes from. He can afford to be unchanging and constant simply because the geography and the style of the story can be completely different. You're obviously British, mm-hmm. and so you come from a certain, to, I'm guessing, the British, there's, and there is, a, to a degree, the feel of a couple of different kinds of British crime friction in in these stories. Obviously, the Sherlock Holmes aspect. And I think, too, there's a feel of a certain kind of British gangster novel that's very low-key and kind of urban or or gritty. Um, But as a writer, when you came here, what made you decide to set your stories in America as opposed to the UK? Simply because it was the character that I wanted, Reacher, and uh, he's a mythic throwback, really, to 
generations of, uh, of these loner characters who roam the land for one reason or another, uh, helping people for one reason or another, either because they're commanded to or they're impelled to by their own moral code. And that kind of character depends on vastness, emptiness, a frontier feel, a dangerous feel, a feel where it's plausible that you can go for hundreds of miles into secret situations that are unaffected by anything near it. And, you know, that was possible in Europe in the Middle Ages, but after that, when Europe became densely populated and settled and civilized, that character was essentially edged out, literally edged out, pushed to the edges. And the edges of the known world, obviously, by the 18th and 19th century became the US, where there is still, even now in the 21st century, there is still a feeling of vastness, emptiness, slight <coughs> danger, slight frontier feel in parts of the US. So it was really a literary decision. That character couldn't, couldn't live anywhere else. It had to be in the US. Did you find that you had to like uh, scrub yourself of anglicisms in, when you were writing the first book? Yeah, I did. It, that's a complex subject in as much as the world is now so international mm -hmm. and culture is so homogenized and so, so easily shared now. Um, you know, even, even in a generation, the, the, the world shares its culture so much e more easily. And therefore, we're all swimming in the same soup, basically, where actually none of us is sure what is a Britishism and what is not. And some of it is counterintuitive. If you go... If you look at literary history or linguistic history, there are certain um, there are certain phrases. For instance, "stiff up a lip," which absolutely people think is a British phrase, sums up the British character. Keep a stiff up a lip. That uh, that ex expression actually originated in the U.S. There are uh, expressions like "bite the dust," which everybody thinks is a U American phrase. You know, from the Western years, "bite the dust" is actually a British expression. So no, nobody's very sure what came from where. But it's always much more important not to be accurate or academic, but to be plausible. So yeah, I had a, you know, a learning curve there to avoid usages that sounded not American, even if they actually were. If they sounded wrong, they were wrong. And that was a process for me, yeah. Well, I, I have to say, I mean, they see the novels do feel quintessentially American, Raymond Chandler from, from the get-go. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is the way that you characterize uh, Jack Reacher, and we get little kind of glimpses of him now and again when he's talking uh, in the first book, when he's talking about the president canceling the, the Coast Guard search. and. At one point, he we hear that uh, Harry S. Truman is his favorite president. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right. The, the 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 way the way I conceptualize Reacher is a you know a complex man with with uh, tastes and preferences and so on and so forth, but not very egotistical, not very um, interested in himself, with no reason ever to come out with personal information. So it has to be teased out of him over many books and. Uh, when he does grudgingly therefore give up a piece of um, personal information like Truman being his favorite president, it, it's significant. Why is Truman his favorite president? Well, I think for two reasons. Firstly, Truman uh, step, had, had to step up to the plate in a big way in 1945, where 
And it was not like it is now with uh, the vice presidential involvement that we understand today is a very recent phenomenon. Um, Harry Truman was FDR's vice president in, in FDR's last term, as we know. But Truman had only ever met FDR once in his life. There was none of this kind of, you know, daily meeting. There was none of this kind of Bush-Cheney or Obama-Biden type of thing going on where they collaborate in any way. Truman had only ever met FDR once in his life for, for about half an hour formally, even though he was his vice president. Then FDR dies, Truman becomes president, and Truman becomes president, and for the very first time in his life, he is told that there is a Manhattan Project, that there is an atom bomb being developed. And he didn't know about it before. Now he does know about it. And within months, he has to take the decision whether to use it or not, which is probably, in all of history, in all of human history, that is probably the most momentous wartime decision ever taken, whether to use this weapon or not. And Truman, with very little experience, very little previous knowledge of it, has to take that decision, and he, t he decides yes to use it. And I think Reacher would absolutely respect that kind of not shying away from the tough decision. He faced the tough decision and he took it. And then, of course, there's the kind of personal things about Truman that I think Reacher would very much respond to. Truman, uh, you know, famously when Truman moved into the White House, he built what's now called the Truman Balcony because the White House was in a bad state when Truman moved in, so he had it refurbished. He was living across Pennsylvania Avenue in Blair House while the work was being done. And during the time he was living in Blair House, two assassins came to kill him, uh, you know, which happens from time to time. One of them was uh, taken down by the cops stationed outside Blair House. The other one got into Blair House, and Truman himself attacked him. Truman was beating this guy up, and the Secret Service men had to haul Truman off the attacker, not the other way around. Now, that's, again, the sort of thing that would appeal to Reacher. Truman's daughter was... Uh, stage performer, later a novelist, and she got a terrible review for one of her stage performances. And Truman wanted to go around and bust the reviewer's nose. Now, you know, that's the sort of thing that Reacher would, that Reacher thinks, yeah, that's the kind of president I like. Uh, one of the, the phrases we hear Reacher say is four-dimensional planning. Mm. I love this idea. Talk about creating that. Well, everybody knows the three dimensions, you know, height, width, and breadth. And uh, the fourth dimension is time and obviously time is absolutely crucial for any ongoing dynamic situation and uh, you know that's a personal obsession of mine as well I'm always punctual and I can't stand it when people are not punctual if somebody says they'll meet me on the corner of 22nd Street at one o'clock then each of those components is equally important to me one o'clock is just as important as the corner of 22nd Street if you're not going to be there at one o'clock then it would be equally logical to meet me on a different corner. They're all of identical importance, and uh, Reacher feels the same thing. And the only way to understand, obviously, battles, combat, travel, anything, is you have to think four-dimensionally. It's not where you are, it's where and when you are. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, uh, you have such a facility for describing scenes of action so that they unplay, unfold in our mind like a movie uh, I, I think that's what one of the things that makes reading your book so immersive and I'm wondering how much of this you block out do you have 
illustrations or is this does this too pour off the tip of your pen yeah i don't work it out on paper it's but i i do visualize it intensely in my head i, I mean it's a real four-dimensional situation in my head and and i i just write it down and i have this um you know pithy little saying that that i i advise other writers to to do is write the slow stuff fast and write the fast stuff slow in other words, if, you, if it's just like you're taking a cab ride across town to get from A to B, then fine, do that in two lines. If it is a knife spinning through the air aimed at your head, then fine, take four pages over that. Because that stuff is, uh, if you slow it right down, analyze it, describe it minutely, that stuff is inherently fascinating. Your books have a fair amount of violence and gore in them sometimes, and I'm wondering... If that is, is, does that just entirely revolve out of the situation, or do you sometimes say, "Wow, I better ratchet back. This is a little bit extreme." Yeah, that's um, that's one of the strange conundrums of of, of writing this type of book, because yeah. a lot of writers in this genre are or have been cops, for instance. You know, I've got a lot of friends who are their day job is cops, or you know, they're retired law enforcement of some kind. And they're writing these books, and, and universally they they say they have to tone it down because reality is usually too disgusting, too extreme, and in many ways too banal to put in a book like this. Um, so I think, yeah, it's not quite realistic violence. It's always a little bit, um, it's always a li- not sanitized exactly, but it's adjusted to be interesting rather than just gross. This uh, also, I think, there's an analog of that applies to your sense of dialogue, which I think is really snappy, and you know how to play it, lay it out on the page. But I think that you write something that reads very authentically, but I, maybe not exactly the way people actually talk. So of course <laughs> not, no. I mean, that is one of the most uh, fascinating parts about writing. And... To get praise for natural dialogue is, is a curious circular argument because dialogue in a book is nothing like natural. And if you want to take, if you want to, if you want to prove that to yourself, just rewind this interview for f- by five minutes and transcribe what we're actually saying, you and me. Just write it down and leave gaps where we're pausing and so on and so forth, as if you were, it's a technical linguistic transliteration. That is real dialogue. These are real people talking. And it looks nothing like you'll find in a book. There's hesitations, there's repetitions, stopping and starting, fumbling, wrong words, all that kind of thing. That looks nothing like dialogue in a book. Dialogue in a book is highly unnatural. But if you do it well enough, you get praised for natural dialogue. Uh, it's one of the glorious tricks of the trade. And I love it. I love, that's the part of the craft that I love more than anything else. Just four or five words, somehow you can suggest everything. You can suggest accent, emphasis, character, temper, humor. Just in a few words, the rhythms of speech, if you choose them right, it is a glorious, wonderful thing to do. And I I take a lot of satisfaction in it and... uh, and I think both writing good dialogue and reading good dialogue is one of the absolute pleasures of, of life. And I think it's all instructive in that sense as well, that we are a, a species that talks to each other. Talking is incredibly important. Talking is really what separates us from, 
from other animals. And so therefore there is something, I think, universally appealing in, in reading dialogue. Um, I think we all love it. There's a certain uh, musicality to your books, I think, in the way that you will use repetition and kind of, and, th and this is because your uh, word processor has two, t two special keys that nobody else's has. You have a that's for damn sure <laughs> key and a reacher said nothing key. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, musicality is a great word for that because it is music. I, mean, I think there's a lot of relationship between music and writing, in as much as you know, music is a time-based thing. It's not like pictorial art. Pictorial art is there all in one go for you to look at. Music unfolds over a period of time. Four-dimensional. So, yeah. So does the book. The book unfolds over a period of time. Um, music generally has this feeling of. Of, of yearning to get to somewhere, uh, to arrive at the resolution. So does a book. A book is all about arriving at the resolution. So there's a lot in common between between um, books and music, especially with rhythm. I think rhythm is is absolutely essential. That you you have a propulsive rhythm through the book, that you ach achieve in very subtle ways. That the the reader is is not like thrown through the book, but just gently impelled through the book by a forward-leaning rhythm. And repetition is, is part of it. it. Repetition restates the rhythm, emphasizes the rhythm, um, is, is somewhat comforting, I think. It's uh, you know, like hitting the root note of a chord periodically. Uh, so yeah, I'm extremely aware. And it's no, it's no coincidence, really, that a huge number of writers are uh, either frustrated musicians or actually accomplished musicians. I mean, I've heard so many writers say that their first love was music, they would happily give all this up in exchange for being able to play music. Uh, there seems to be a very strong link between the two disciplines. Uh, absolutely. You know, um, when you're talking about pacing, one of the things I think you do extremely well, and this is really hard balance to pull off, is that in novels of suspense, there's this kind of, uh, I, as I say, a balance between making us want to get to the end and keeping us in such high suspense that we just go, I gotta see. <laughs> you manage to keep us, make us want to read every word. To, you want make us want to take the journey there rather than just get to the end. Yeah, I, I, pacing I think is subtle and complex and I think that uh, in a way variation is is the key to it. You can read some books, I think, you know, poorer thrillers tend to be relentless. That whatever the, you know, they've moved at a very high speed relentlessly. And I think that's probably not the right approach. Because pace doesn't necessarily imply speed. You can have um, forward motion that is quite slow and ominous. Uh, you know, there are many great books that proceed slowly, but with a great sense of dread. You know, every footstep is this doomy, echoing, dread thing that is inevitably leading you towards a conclusion. What I try and do with mine is uh, I want overall, as, as an overall concept, yes, I want it to feel like a high-speed book that you cannot put down. But in any one individual instance, I want it to feel occasionally languid, patient, discursive. Uh, I want those pages where nothing much happens or there's a little break or a little pause because I think that relentlessness is exhausting and I, I think pacing generally shouldn't be uniform I think it should get, it should be f 
you know, like like a dance step, quick, quick, slow, slow, quick, whatever. Just just keep it going. Uh, Reacher at one point uh, thinks, always turn left. Uh-huh. <laughs> so about, where did you pick that one up? I just picked I picked that up from some some guy I knew. That uh, I mean, it's completely arbitrary. If you don't know where you're going, turn left, and you've at least got a fifty-fifty chance of of being right. There you go. Now, one of the things that uh, crops up in A Wanted Man is a very is a, uh, a, an FBI version of a very famous uh, psychological experiment. Uh, and I'm wondering if you know whether or not this was done at, uh, at the FBI, as, as you describe it. Uh, what part is that? Uh, this is the, uh, with the, um, where you have people, uh, a classroom full of people. Oh, and yeah, And somebody yeah. kind of charges mm. in. The eyewitness testing. Yeah, yeah. the eyewitness testing. That's something that I, I, I got very interested in a number of years ago. And, uh, you know, because eyewitness testimony would seem to be utterly uncontrovertible. You know, the guy's seen, you know, you saw it happen. What, what more do you need to know? But there are countless experiments, countless, that, um, that prove how dodgy eyewitness testimony is. There's the one quoted in the book. There was another one I read about that's even more astonishing where... Uh, a bunch of people were brought together in some bleachers. There was a, a circle of basketball players. It was actually a video, a circle of basketball players on video. They each had a ball, and they were bouncing the ball across the floor to their opposite number. Several balls in motion all at once. And the point of the exercise was the people witnessing the video had to count the number of bounces. That's all they had to do. Watch the balls count the number of bounces, and these balls were flying back and forth in profusion. And at the end of the experiment, the examiner collated the answers. How many bounces? Somebody was saying 42, somebody was saying 47, whatever. Then the examiner said, and what did you think about the gorilla? And they, they were all saying, what gorilla? And then they watched the tape again, and they saw that a man in a gorilla suit had walked through the middle of the picture. And because they were so focused on counting the b- bounces, they had totally missed it. Eyewitness testimony is one of the the least safe versions of testimony, and I think that over the coming years we will we will certainly find that to be true. And that plays a, a, a that uh, attitude plays a big part in uh, one shot. Absolutely, in you a lot of my books. That. I mean, the <laughs> first li- the first line of a wanted man is the eyewitness said he didn't actually see it happen. I've been speaking with Lee Child. His new book is A Wanted Man. Thank you for joining me, Lee. My pleasure, Rick. Absolutely. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.